Maybe you've heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. We tend to say it if we're delivering bad news that comes from someone else uh, so that the, the person to whom we're speaking, uh, the person who's getting this bad news, knows that we are simply handing on what we've been told to say. Now, I, I'm not the source, right? I'm just the person telling you what's going on. I'm the messenger. So if you, if you don't like the message, remember that I'm just the middleman. Now, now, that matters to us today because it, it gives us an instance that, that illustrates, demonstrates uh, the importance, so a time when the importance is in what is said rather than in the person saying it, right? What, what matters is this message and not the guy or girl delivering it. In Galatians 1, 6 to 10, Paul draws our attention to the centrality of the gospel message. It does not matter who delivers it, only that the message is true and accurate according to the one, that message that Christ has delivered to his church. The emphasis is on what is said as the important issue. And as we dive back into this book of Galatians, then it, it's been a few weeks, so it might be helpful if we kind of take account and remind ourselves of what we've considered about this letter already, just to get a handle on what it is and what's going on. So Paul and Barnabas uh, were the apostles who went on their first missionary journey, as is told in Acts 13 and 14. And that journey took them through this province of Galatia as they planted various churches, and as they returned to their sending church in uh, Antioch. Well, we know at that time from uh, Acts 15, 1 to 3, that some men came from Jerusalem trying to impose circumcision on Gentiles as a condition to be saved. And this instance... That that event required Paul and Barnabas uh, to go to Jerusalem for a council with the other apostles and elders. But Paul also, at this time, learned that that these troublemakers from Jerusalem had not just reached Antioch, but had gone even at least as far as Galatia. And so... As he departed for Jerusalem, he wrote this letter, the epistle to the Galatians, to address the problem and refocus them on the accuracy of the message, the gospel. So in his first major point, Paul shows that Galatians, uh, that it shows the Galatians that it does not matter who proclaims the message, a message, any message, if it is not the true gospel. They cannot listen to individuals over and against the revealed message about Christ, the one that has already been preached to them and the one that they have received, the one that they know to be true, should know to be true. No matter who says anything else, they need to be faithful to what has been delivered. So, 
Our main point today is that the church must maintain our focus on the accuracy of our message. The church must maintain focus on the accuracy of our message. We'll think about this in three points. A startling greeting, a startling opponent, and a settled response. So first we're going to think about the star- or a startling greeting. Um, so, if, you, if you've spent any time reading Paul's letters, you probably know that there's a few key features that show up in, in most of them. Right? He tends to open the letter somehow, you know, Paul an apostle, grace to you and peace, as even in Galatians 1.3, right? We see that there. And further, usually, usually the first big thing he does after that you know, greeting is to list his thanks and his prayers for the church to which he's writing. And so, so for example, Philippians 1, 3, and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making prayer with joy. Right? So he's thankful and he's praying for them. And that's a regular feature of his writing. In contrast to that usual practice, uh, Paul totally skips any sort of thanksgiving in his letter to the Galatians. Right? Notice his, his transition from his greeting in, in verses 1 to 5 directly to an opening rebuke in verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are in the process of turning to a different gospel. Why Paul's break a pattern? Now, we might suggest it's because, right, as we, as we thought about last time we looked at this letter, we might suggest it's because this is Paul's first letter. And he hadn't yet established that pattern. Now, this pattern, though, that Paul regularly used throughout his writings has similarity to standard letter-writing features of his day, though, um, which he obviously knew and obviously used. So, so I don't think it does the trick to say, well, he hadn't yet established his normal practice. Better, I think, that the specific problem in Galatia has left him sufficiently troubled and irritated that correction, rather than thanks, is the foremost thing pressing on his mind. But but let's think about that for just, just a second. It's easy enough to think, right, okay, of course, Paul's bothered and needs to correct the problem. But there are problems in the other letters he wrote. <laughs> right? And, and that makes us reflect more upon what's happening in Galatians. You know, if we, if we consider 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, Paul wrote there, I give thanks 
to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. He's thankful for the Corinthians, right? And as we may remember from our series when we were able to have evening services, Corinthians were full of moral problems, right? Including things Christians suing each other, not caring about one another's well-being, and even at least one church member having a sexually immoral relationship with his mother-in-law. Not trivial issues. And yet, Paul still began by giving thanks for that congregation, despite how they have significantly missed the mark in their behavior. But he starts Galatians with a rebuke. Because the problem in Galatia was not that they were living inconsistently with what they believe, with good Christian doctrine. Rather, the Galatians had abandoned good doctrine itself. Right? There's a difference between living inconsistently with the truth that you know and forgetting the truth. And I think in our day and age, it's, it's worth noting and reflecting upon how Paul's fiercest introduction appears in his letter most focused on doctrinal correction. I think we tend to reverse that order. It it doesn't seem to us like such a big deal. If someone is doctrinally off base, as long as they are minding the practical obligations of Christian godliness. As we get into Galatians, we will see that the the big behavioral problem uh, in Galatia was that they were practicing circumcision, imposing it on Gentiles as a condition for salvation. That's the underlying premise. But But the behavior itself was simply circumcision. Right? That's not something that's in itself ungodly only when it becomes a condition for salvation. And so, we see in that, that Paul is most riled by doctrinal mistakes. And the reason, the reason is because, right, Paul believed, still does, in fact, I'm sure, That teaching good doctrine, teaching the truth, despite what we may guess, it is teaching good truth itself that produces holiness, true holiness in God's people. So if we teach incorrectly, we will not understand God and his works And because of that, our Christian life will wither. So he wrote in 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 5, 
as I urged you, speaking to Timothy, as I urged you, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The aim of our charge, skipping ahead slightly, the aim of our charge about teaching correctly, right? The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience in a sincere faith. Right? So Paul is concerned that teaching is accurate because he knows under the Spirit's inspiration that that teaching purifies the heart, brings about a good conscience, increases a sincere faith so that love might issue from it. Teaching truth brings about love issuing from a renewed heart. What do we take away from that? Well, if we're concerned about the Christian life, which I hope we are, we must be concerned about doctrine, theology. We need good doctrine if we are to have good practice. We cannot live pleasingly to God if we ignore what is true. And so we need to understand that as as much as we might yearn and be excited by uh, concrete practical instruction, how to how to use Scripture to better or invigorate the menial affairs of daily life, well, we have to accept that God has made it so that He has established so that the teaching of doctrine better equips us for the practicalities of the Christian life, better than direct practical instruction. And so, so Paul is understandably upset that the Galatians had diverted from the truth, as his startling greeting shows. And that brings us to our second point. A startling opponent. Right? So we, we thought about how Paul's uh, opening here is a stark rebuke in contrast to his usual practice, and that's because the truth isn't being taught. And, and so we've seen that he cared deeply for doctrine, which suggests that one primary way to grow in the Christian life is by understanding the truths that the Scripture teaches. And we, we further see in Galatians 1, 6-10, some of Paul's concerns about this specific congregation and how uh, error has entered their midst. So we can break these verses down to see that in them, Paul first describes their situation, and then he prescribes for them their response. So the situation and the response they should have. In verses 6 to 7, 
Paul outlines the Galatian situation. And he writes, I'm astonished that you are, remember, this, this letter is coming just a few months, you know, not, it seems not quite a year since he left them. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning. They haven't yet turned all the way, but they are beginning to turn, are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The situation then is that they have departed from the gospel. They're at least beginning to listen to false teaching because of erroneous teachers. Right? Paul was clear that even though these false teachers had come to them under the banner of the gospel, there is only one true gospel message. If what they hear and believe is not that one singular, definitively true message, if it's not that one message, then it's not the gospel. You can put a different spin on it. You can do whatever you want. If it's if it's not this, it's not the gospel. There is no other gospel. It may be called the gospel. Right? People may put it under the heading of gospel issues. It may be called a version of the gospel, but in reality, there is no other gospel. As we read... Uh, previously in Acts 15.1, right? Some men came down from Judea, from Jerusalem, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was teaching. And these men, or at least ones who shared their view, reached Galatia with this distorted gospel and were imposing circumcision on them. A condition of salvation. And Paul noted that these men were troubling the church with their distortion of the gospel. The situation is then that the teachers who have come with the distorted gospel are being heard. They're listening to them. That's the situation. And Paul also doesn't just leave them to reflect upon it, but gives them the appropriate Response in verses 8 and 9. So in contrast, but in contrast to your situation, even if we, the people who talk to you first, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now say it again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. His point is that no matter who the messenger is, doesn't matter who they are, the Galatians and every Christian must not waver from the true message of the gospel. He poses a hypothetical instance where 
even if we, right, namely the apostles who instructed them with doctrine, uh, you know, even if we came and taught you contrary to what you have already heard, you cannot listen even to us. He goes further to say, even if an actual angel from heaven itself were to come down and teach contrary to what you have heard as the gospel, it does not matter. You cannot listen to them either. It cannot be stated uh, in any higher rhetoric that it is the message and not the messenger that matters. Now, why why is this going to be important uh, within this letter? Because it prepares us for Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, right? It, where Paul described his disagreement with Peter, right? His, his on-the-nose point was that even if Peter, right, the apostle to the Jews... A, a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. The guy who, in many respects, was one of, if not the closest to Jesus himself, even if Peter says something other, we hold fast to the message rather than the messenger. So, I mean, in this context, then, Paul's surprising opponent, as we will see more in weeks ahead, was another apostle, Peter himself. Peter hadn't abandoned the gospel. He had just lost track of its implications and how to be accurate about it. What do we take away from this? Well, that reminds us that we too need to be far more concerned about what is being said than about who is saying it. Right? Because note well, I mean, I think we we tend to think in terms of error coming from someone who is clearly outside our ranks. But note well in Galatians that these men, including you know, in a different way, Peter were Christians. Worked in the recognized church. And yet they were mistaken. It's not to say they were heretics. We all fall into error and mistakes. But certainly their mistake was grave. We live in an age of unprecedented access to Christian teaching. Through, I mean, not only through books and publications, but the ease of online access and sermon recordings and and videos. In, in that situation, right, we, it's very easy for us to get hung up on names that are very well known. I listen to so-and-so. You know, their, their preaching is 
really what makes it happen. You know, my guy is John Piper or John MacArthur, John Keller, whomever you may prefer. It's, it's very easy for people to assume that what men like this say is true simply because they're well-known. Now, I, I don't have a, a hidden critique of, of them that's coming. I'm just using their status to illustrate a point. But the, the same was true in Galatia. Undoubtedly, these troublemakers came saying, we're from the Jerusalem church. Paul may have said justification by faith alone, but did he come from Jerusalem? We're from Tim Keller's city to city. We're from Desiring God Ministries. All these things are well and good, but is is what this specific person saying to me true, the received message? And I'm not accusing those, I just want to be clear, I'm not accusing those ministries of specific error, but just using their well-known status to make a point. The messenger is a non-issue. The message must be the biblical gospel according with good standards of doctrine. We too may find ourselves with startling opponents if we ignore the prestige of celebrity speakers and preachers and pay attention to what is said. We're supposed to be people who mind the words, grasp the message, and hold to the true gospel. That brings us to our final point, a settled response. Paul went so far as to say that those who preach anything other than the truth that has already been announced are to be accursed. To be under the penalties of the law, God's law. We know from later in Galatians that the curse comes from God who inflicts those penalties of his covenant upon sinners. And so we are to see those who alter the gospel, not as great teachers who just happen not to get the details right, but men under a curse. That, that doesn't mean that we, that we do anything to them. God is the one who does the cursing. But we still recognize that whoever they may be, if their message is otherwise than the received truth, they need serious instruction and correction. Paul's own response to that situation, his settled response, in which, in this problem, which his own apostolic authority and message was in question, was to reaffirm in verse 10 that he is concerned with pleasing God rather than men. He writes, for, because, 
Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is his reason why the Galatians need to consider any messenger, no matter their status, no matter who they may be, cursed if they teach contrary to the revealed gospel. Paul said, look, if I were trying to rub elbows with the greats, if, if I wanted to be in the midst of all the important, significant people in society, then yeah, I would accept prominent messengers, whatever they say. If I wanted to be wined and dined, if I wanted to have prestige and significance and importance culturally, then yeah, important people can say whatever they want and I would take it. But, I'm not trying to please man. I'm trying to be faithful to God. We too need to be mindful that there's not much value. We're not interested in rubbing shoulders with the so-called greats, but interested in the truth of what we believe. Why? Because it is the truth that sets us free from this present evil age. The truth of Christ who gave himself for our sins and was raised on the third day for our justification. In the end, you may get to meet the most important people in society if you take whatever they might say. But do you get to stand in good relationship with God because of that? It is the gospel of Jesus given for our sin and raised for our justification that puts us right with the most important person, the triune God. So, we can mind prestige or we can mind salvation. And as it happens, when we attend the gospel, we do get to rub elbows with greats. They're sitting next to you in your church. But what do we do with this? Well, I think we take note of the structure in which Paul worked through this issue. The way that he he thought about this. Right? We marked last time that Paul noted, emphasized even, uh, in verse 2, that he was writing alongside all the brothers who are with me. Right? Namely, he, he is with, as he writes this, he is with the other elders and leaders in the church on the way to discuss the problem that had spread throughout the presbyteries. Although, so in that situation, although... There were individuals who were mistaken and were teaching error. The church as a whole still had clarity about the message of the gospel. There was confusion that needed clarification, but individuals rather than the whole church had gone pointedly off track. Paul was with the church. 
And the church had distributed the accurate gospel message to them. And I suggest, um, for our delight, I think, and well-being, that this is why it's good to be part of a confessional church. Right? As Presbyterians, as Reformed people, we have written down what we believe. They are stated for us in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. And because of these documents that have summarized the truth of Scripture, we're not dependent on one person to get the message right. You don't rely on me for the accuracy of the message. Nor do we even have to rely on the leaders of our particular congregation to figure out the truth. But just point them to make sure that they know what it is and explain it to us. The church has summarized biblical truth in our professions and and the leaders here, right, for your good, we are accountable to the truth we confess. We cannot teach otherwise. And that means you don't have to listen to error. Hopefully, we pray God protects us from that. But if it were to be here, we are accountable to the true message. The message is preserved, and we submit to that message. And of course, this is most significant because the high point of what we confess and believe is the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinners are prone to wander in thought, word, and deed. We can be mistaken in what we believe. Right? We live in the present evil age, as Paul put it, in which there is deception, and we are often weak, susceptible to that deception, and even unfaithful at times. And yet Jesus Christ has given himself on account of our sins to free us from the power of the present evil age. The Father raised the Son from the grave so that now he stands in heaven as the pledge of our everlasting salvation. We need not live to please man or or fear the opinion and approval of others precisely because Christ has made it so that we are ever welcome in God's sight. We have approval. It is the approval of God Almighty who has declared us righteous because of Jesus and invites us into communion with him and grants us all the comfort that could come from that, whatever may unsettle us in the world. We give thanks for that and we turn to God in prayer. Father God, we are thankful that it is We are not dependent on men 
We are not dependent on a man for truth, but we rely on a message, the one singular gospel, the truth about reconciliation and freedom from present evil age. And we ask that you would indeed help us, that we would keep track of the truth, and that we would be encouraged by these, where we are able to set aside whatever important people may say. And when it comes to doctrine and what to believe, we do not have to listen to the most prominent speakers, the most well-known speakers. We can if we benefit from them, but we do not have to know what everyone has ever said. We need to know what you have said. And you have said that Christ gave himself for our sins and that you have raised him for our justification. And we pray that in that we find immense comfort in being approved by our God and being joined to a community of the saints who are our brothers and sisters who travail this pilgrimage of the Christian life with us. We pray that we would encourage them with the truth and do well in that also. We pray these things for the sake of Christ. Amen.